Welcome back to another episode of The Spooktacular Now. I'm Kenzie, here with my co-host, Nikki. And today we are delving into the world of hard science fiction film and cinema. We're talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, Contact, 1997. Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey, star. It's a good one. It sure is. Definitely, I feel um, it deserves more love. It's kind of like a... Like, it's not... Um, I guess maybe it's not people's like go-to movie when we talk about like nostalgic sci-fi films. Mm-hmm. You know, I do... I, yeah, I kind of feel like it's overlooked. Yeah, underappreciated. But yeah, yeah. yeah, underrated as far as um, you know, sci-fi films go and... Uh, I don't know what I was going to say with that. <laughs> 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 a little rusty today. But yeah, let's uh, just dive right into it. So this film is actually based off of a novel of the same name by American astronomer and astrophysicist Carl Sagan. Hmm. And the novel was actually first published in 1985. But a fun fact, Sagan first wrote the story as a screenplay in 1979 huh. with producer and... Drew Yan. Oh, that was his wife. Yes. They um, got married eventually and had kids. And uh, I think she was a producer on Cosmos, too, which Mm. he -hmm. also was a host of. Yeah. And um, the idea for the film was then made into a novel when production uh, stalled at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, But eventually, you know, they did pick up the project again. I think Jodie Foster had a lot to do with that because really? she was a student of Carl Sagan's. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. That's how she got tied to that project. No way. Mm-hmm. Did she, was she like a science major or something? Must Did he teach at Yale? I can't remember. Maybe. She went to an Ivy League school. She did? Mm-hmm. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, and she took one of his classes. So. Oh. Yeah, they must have That's in, cool. Yeah, they must have stayed in contact. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my god. Oh, knee slapper. So the film was released to U.S. theaters on July 11th, 1997. I was just shy of a year old. Wow. It's just a wee lass. I saw it in the movie theater when it came out. You did? Probably three times because I was pretty obsessed with it. Yeah. That tracks. It was so good. (laughs) I... I probably would have seen it quite a few times in theaters, too. I just... This is one of those movies that I can watch over and over again. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to it at least a couple months just because I love it so much. It's just such a good, you know, feel-good movie. It's Mm -hmm. not a movie... Like, you know, if you're into sci-fi and stuff, but you like more, like, light-hearted, like, action, not a movie you have to think about, this is not the film for you. It's very... Like, thought-provoking and Mm -hmm. philosophical. More cerebral. Yes. Yes. Um, Did you ever read the book? I started to, and I'm going to be honest, as much as I love Carl Sagan, I don't think he's that great of a fiction author. Okay. It was just very dry, and he took a lot of time to explain, like, every character's backstory. Um, I think I made it through... The first couple of chapters where he's like establishing uh, the main character Ellie, who Jodie Foster plays. 
like her childhood and how she's like being encouraged to pursue science and math and all of that. I don't know. It just it did not reel me in. Okay. Like I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I, I already had an idea of like the film and that story that I love so much, and then getting to the book, it was kind of a disappointment. Yeah. So I never finished it. And there were some significant differences, too, between the yes, book and the film. there were a lot of differences, and we'll get into that okay. a little bit later. Um, but first, just some movie facts. Uh, after going through a few change of hands, the project was given to Robert Zemeckis to direct, who you probably know his work um, best through the Back to the Future trilogy, oh, okay. Ian Forrest Gump. He also did that. Yes. And he's worked with Tom Hanks a lot. And um, there's another actor in here, what's his name, Jeffrey Blake, who yeah. I guess has worked with Tom Hanks a lot also. Who would he play? He had a minor role. He was um, Fisher, the like research assistant, the guy with the glasses, oh. sort of long hair. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And it was produced by Zemeckis and Steve Starkey, who... Interestingly enough, worked as an assistant editor on Star Wars Episode 5 and 6. Oh, wow. Yeah. Small world. And while I was reading about the film, I saw that uh, Skywalker Sound and ILM worked on it as mm. well. Like, there was a lot of... They did a lot of production for the film, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. And the score was written by Alan Silvestri, who... I love his work. Did he also do Forrest Gump? Probably. Okay. Well, let me look that up, because he's done a lot of big he has. Hollywood it's, films. Yeah. He's very prolific. He did, um, I could be wrong, but I swear he did the Avengers theme. Okay. Oh, really? That was awesome. (laughs) Thanks. Who created the Avengers theme song? Alan Silvestri. Yeah. I know my scores. What movies has he composed? Back to the Future, Forrest Gump. Oh. Polar Express. Which is also a Zemeckis film. The Croods, Lilo and Stitch, Predator. Oh. Avengers Endgame, The Avengers. Yeah, he's... uh, He's done a lot. He has. Also Cast Away. Dang. So many movies. They all like work together. I, I guess it's like themes. Yeah. It's like um how John Williams does a lot of Steven Spielberg's mm-hmm. films. Yes. Awesome. They all work together. Yeah. It's great. Mm-hmm. One of the great American composers. And then the one that passed away, was it James Horner? Oh, James Horner. Yeah. Oh, I love his music so too. Good. Yeah. He did Glory. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's one of my favorite movie soundtracks yeah. ever. Oh, so I love sad. his music. Yeah. Yeah. And he was he was young, wasn't he? Yeah. He was like in his 50s or 60s. I, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. The budget for the film was 90 million and it ended up grossing 171.1 million nice. at the box office, so not too bad. And as I stated, uh, Jodie Foster stars as the main character, Dr. Ellie Arroway. Matthew McConaughey stars as Palmer Joss. I love anything with Matthew McConaughey Same, in it. I love him. I know. He's so good. He is. <laughs> I could just listen to him talk forever. I know. He's got such a unique voice. Mm-hmm. And he's always just, like, no matter what he's in, he's always kind of, like, chill. Mm-hmm. 
And he, he just, oh, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> no, he, came, he came up with that on his own. Really? Yes, he did. Wow. I uh, read his book, Green Lights, while I listened to it in my car. And he does the narration. Oh. It was very entertaining. Yeah, I bet. I, I, I highly nice. recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom Skerritt uh, plays Dr. David Drumlin. James Woods as Michael Kitts. John Hurt, rest in peace, as S.R. Haddon. And Angela Bassett, Rob Lowe, Jake Busey, William Fitchner, and Jenna Malone also star smaller roles. That's a big cast. Yeah. Quite a star-studded cast for a, such an underrated movie. All right, so let's dive into this plot here. Um, now, this movie is going on 30 years old, almost, oh which makes me goodness. feel really old. <laughs> um, so it seems kind of silly to be like, well, spoiler warning, if you haven't seen it already. Right. But if you haven't... Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but also I was going to say, maybe go watch it first. Um, cause I, you know, we do highly recommend the film if you like, you know, something a little more thought provoking, mm-hmm. uh, but still a really neat sci-fi film. Definitely go watch it first, then come back and, uh, listen to this episode. So I concur. Yeah. All right. So just a brief overview of the film's plot. So the film opens with a view of earth from space and a jarring cacophony of radio transmissions and music, which when I had watched this the other day um, before, you know, working on this episode, I completely forgotten that it started like that, and I had my TV turned up pretty loud. Oh, dang. And it's just like, you know, it's like, yeah. it's so loud. And it starts so sudden. I was like, ah, ah, trying to like <laughs> get the remote, turn it down really quickly, because my ears were like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So it'll, it'll wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> the view slowly pulls away from the Earth through the rest of the solar system and eventually the galaxy as Earth's signals become quieter and less frequent. The journey through space fades to black as the scene shifts to the eyes of a young girl named Ellie Arroway, played by Jenna Malone, as she uses a ham radio to call to other operators. Her father, played by David Morse, helps her to keep track of the places she's made contact with, with her latest one being as far as Pensacola, Florida. A grown Ellie, now an astronomer, begins her work for the SETI program at the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Rest in peace, Arecibo. Wah. Yeah. Didn't they take that down last year? Uh, it hasn't been too it? long ago. Yeah. That's sad. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can get a piece of it. <laughs> well, maybe. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> her work involves listening to radio emissions from space in the hopes of finding signs of intelligent extraterrestrial extraterrestrial life there she meets dr kent clark which is so funny to me that name kent clark yeah yeah i don't remember coming when i was looking up the book i don't remember coming across his character so i'm like why did they make up that character why did they give him that name specifically yeah there's gotta be some backstory (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and uh dr clark is played by william fitchner and research assistant, uh, Mr. Fisher, who I mentioned, is played by Jeffrey Blake. While there, she meets Palmer Joss, a former priest who is in Puerto Rico to research the effect that technology has on developing nations. The two form a bond and share an evening together. The next day, Ellie is informed that the project has lost its funding after David Drumlin, the president's science advisor, deems it futile. 
Kent, Fisher, and Ellie rallied to search for funding elsewhere, bidding them to seek support from Haddon Industries, a global tech giant. CEO S.R. Haddon views Ellie's presentation remotely and grants her the funding, sending the team to the very large array in Socorro, New Mexico, and which I want to go there so badly. Yeah. It looks so space cool. Trail. I know. And I want to do a space trail series. Oh, yeah. Talk about idea. all the cool, uh, you know. Things out west yeah. to see and do. Yeah. Because New Mexico's hopping for that stuff. Yeah. And that's where aliens are. And the VLA <laughs> is in Arizona or New Mexico? No, New Mexico. Oh, there's Socorro. so much out there. Yeah. I guess uh, Los Alamos has become quite the tourist spot since yeah. Oppenheimer I, came out. I would imagine. And they're like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Four years pass, and just when Drumlin is about to terminate the SETI program at the VLA, Ellie discovers a high-powered signal containing a sequence of prime numbers that appears to have originated from the star Vega. This announcement leads Drumlin to the National Security Council, headed by Michael Kitts, to attempt to seize control of the facility. Upon further investigation, the SETI team discovers a video hidden within the signal, Adolf Hitler's opening address at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin, Germany. Ellie and her team believe this transmission would have been the first to have been strong enough to penetrate the Earth's ionosphere, travel to Vega, and then be sent back to Earth. And this, the signal in the film, I want to know who came up with it, who like designed the audio for it. Because when I, when I watched it for the first time as a kid, it kind of scared me, the, the signal. The, the scene oh. where she's listening and she hears it for the first time. Yeah. Like, it's kind of creepy. And, like, what did they use to create that sound? Yeah. Did you find anything on that? No. Like, it is creepy. We'll look it up. But I did find a clip. Somebody on YouTube isolated it from the uh, the film. So, you know, for if it's been a while since you've watched the film and you're wondering what we're talking about, I just want to play it really quick. much how it sounds sounds like a bunch of cats meowing all together <laughs> well that definitely detracts from the creep factor now <laughs> i was just picturing a bunch a bunch of cats in my head going meow meow <laughs> it kind of does yeah <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but yeah what they how'd they make that i'll bet you oh, can find no. out yeah well we'll look it up real quick if I can't find anything, then I'll just move on. But I'm really curious. How was the signal from contact made? What? What does it say? A bunch according... of cats meowing all together? <laughs> no. But um, according to this uh, forum, someone responded, uh, the alien transmission that is being heard by Ellie is a very minor variation of the sound effect made by the TARDIS 
as it is powered up in Doctor Who from 1963. Interesting. I need to hear that. So they slowed it down. Hmm. I can kind of hear it. Mm-hmm. And then it was like they added like a, like a high-pitched noise on top of it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. But that's crazy that they took it from that. Huh. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Still, I like that. Still creepy, even if it does sound like a bunch of cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, immediately, the project is put under tight security, and its progress is monitored around the world. The team eventually discovers that the signal contains over 63,000 pages of encoded data. Haddon secretly meets with Ellie and provides her with the primer, the key necessary to decode the pages. The decoded data reveals schematics for a machine that may be a form of transportation for a single individual. Multiple nations provide funding for the construction of the machine, which is built at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral. The International Machine Consortium is formed to select a candidate to represent humanity and make the trip. As head of the team that first discovered the signal, Ellie is the leading candidate until Palmer, who now works as an advisor to the U.S. government, brings attention to her atheism. In spite of being truthful to her own beliefs, the IMC chooses Drumlin over Ellie for supposedly being a better representation of humanity, despite having never professed any faith prior. During an initial test of the machine systems at Cape Canaveral, a religious terrorist played by Jake Busey destroys the machine with a bomb, killing Drumlin and several others. And that dude, yeah, he did such a good job of playing a creepy, Ugh. yes, like religious fanatic. Mm-hmm. Ugh. There's that scene um, after they, you know, announce the signal discovery, mm-hmm. and they're driving back to the VLA, and all those people are there. Some of them are, like, against it, like, oh, it's a conspiracy. Yeah. And then some of them are, like, embracing it. Right. And then uh, we watch Ellie in the front seat of a vehicle that's moving through this uh, this road in the middle of the crowd. And off in the distance, uh, Jake Busey's character is, like, preaching to mm-hmm. these religious fanatics. Yes. And he's like, are these, the, are these scientists... Are these the people you want talking to your God for you? And he like locks eyes with her. Right. She's driving past and ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Ominous. Very ominous. And he shows up again too, doesn't he? They're at like some event and he's standing in the crowd and he like watches her as she goes into it's like a White House event or something. Oh, maybe. I, I missed that. Yeah. I know they show him again at the platform. Yeah. But... Well, yeah. Then, then after that, the second time she sees him. Oh, I, I must have yeah. forgotten that part. I have to... That's the scene where she goes up to Angela Bassett and she's like, where can I find a really great dress? Oh, yeah. And then the dress she shows up in, whoo! Beautiful. That was like the epitome of beauty to me as a timeless. kid. Timeless. <laughs> the dress is timeless. So timeless. Yes. Still she, gorgeous. Her hair's like all done up and it's like curly and oh, long and she looks like yeah. a Grecian goddess. Yes. I'm like, I want that dress. Uh-huh. And she's got like the little matching like cape thing yes. with it. Oh, it was so perfect. So fashion, so couture. <laughs> she, oh, she looks stunning in that. She did. Stunning. Yes. Yeah, but that's the scene where she sees that guy again. Oh, okay. And that's 
I think it's to reiterate that she, like, knows him and recognizes him. Yeah. Because then she's the one who points him out at the test when yeah. he's there. That scene mm-hmm. fills me with such anxiety. I know. Because, like, you see him come up the elevator, and she notices him, and the music gets really intense, mm-hmm. and she's like, he's not supposed to be there. Yeah. And, oh, uh, that's horrible. And then those security guards rush up to him mm-hmm. because they see they've got a bomb. He's got a bomb strapped to him. Yeah. And they're trying, um, they're watching from mission control as this whole uh, thing is going down. And they've got him on the ground, and one of the security guards tries to pull his hand Tries to pull his hand back from the bomb, but he manages to, yes. and it's just silence as yes. it explodes. Oh, Awful. that scene was harrowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Harrowing. Um, so Haddon, now residing at the Mir space station and dying of cancer, reveals to Ellie that the U.S. government had secretly contracted his company to build a second machine in Japan and states that the IMC still wants an American candidate to go. First rule of government spending. Why have one when you can have two? That was the prize. <laughs> that's, cl- that's a classic line. I, I love that. <laughs> oh, man. What a guy. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had a great voice, too. Yeah, John he did. Hurt. Yeah. He did a lot of narration work. So distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was really great in this role. His character is just so goofy. Yeah. Eccentric. Yes, very eccentric. Ellie is then hastily transported to Hokkaido on a cargo ship carrying the mission control personnel. There she is equipped with multiple recording devices. After saying a goodbye to Palmer, Ellie enters the transport pod, which is dropped into the machine's core and seemingly travels through various wormholes. Arroway observes a radio array-like structure at Vega, signs of civilization on an alien planet, and a celestial event that brings her overwhelming emotions. And this scene, too... The way that they did, like, the build-up leading to when, like, the core, you know, drops through and she goes on her journey. Mm-hmm. And she just, like, steps off the elevator and it's really quiet and, like, the the rings of the machine are going and it's really loud. Yeah. And she's only up there with those two, like, technicians. Yeah. And then they just, like, you know, strap her into the chair. Yeah. And, the, you know, and they're Japanese guys, so, of course, they, like, bow to her. Mm-hmm. And she's just kind of like, oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and then they... Uh, button up the core is what they call it in the film. And it's just like dead silent. She's just waiting. But then as the energy is building up and it like starts shaking more and more and she's like, I'm okay to go. I'm yeah. okay to go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so good. That scene filled me with a lot of anxiety uh-huh. as well. <laughs> yeah. Like what's going to happen? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know why, but like my, my palms get sweaty. Oh. Thinking about like, how I don't know how I would react in that situation if it yeah. was me going through that. Like, yeah, every time I watch it, I get, like, nervous. <laughs> oh, right, because she, she didn't know. Am I going to make no. it through yeah. this? Am I going to survive? Yeah, they had no idea. They were just like, okay, they're telling us to build this machine and stick somebody in it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't explain at all what was going to happen. Right. So, yeah, she's really just going in blind. So sometime after falling asleep, she awakens on a beach similar to a childhood drawing she made of Pensacola. A figure approaches, taking on the appearance of her deceased father, whom Ellie recognizes as an alien. He explains that he took on such an appearance to make their meeting more familiar and comfortable and that it was humanity that first contacted his people through our radio emissions and were judged a species worthy of being shown a first step into the cosmos. 
Ellie tries to make sense of how such things are possible, and he states that they had simply been following the same instructions that other civilizations have been practicing for billions of years, suggesting that intelligent life has long existed within the universe. Ellie loses consciousness, and upon regaining it, finds herself lying in the pod while the mission control team repeatedly tries to contact her. She learns that from the outside, the machine only appeared to have dropped into the pod safety net. Ellie insists that she was gone for about 18 hours, but her recording devices show only static noise. A congressional committee headed by Kitts is convened, who speculates that the signal and machine were a hoax designed by Haddon, who had since passed away. Ellie requests that the committee accept the truth of her testimony on faith, declaring that while her testimony cannot be proven scientifically, it has impacted her humanity. In a private conversation, Kitts and White House official Rachel Constantine, played by Angela Bassett, discuss the confidential information that although Ellie's recording device only recorded static, it recorded approximately 18 hours of it. That's the best. Yeah. Ellie reunites with Joss after the hearing, who professes faith in her story to the media. The film ends with Ellie and her team back at the VLA, where she informs a group of young students that the facility is undergoing expansion to better continue their steady work. And that's the film. Fiend. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I just, I could go on and on and on about what I love about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the major things I just wanted to point out was... Yeah, I credit this film with starting my love for science fiction. Ah. And, like, you know, thinking about the possibility of life on other planets. And mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, watching this for the first time, I was a little. Yeah, I you didn't have much of a choice no. because I pretty much forced upon you <laughs> the things that I loved. Yeah. <laughs> and just by chance, you happened to enjoy them too, which yeah. was cool because then we can share a lot of yeah. things now. Yeah, but I, don't, I don't remember exactly how young I was when I first saw this, mm-hmm. but I just remember it really got my gears turning mm-hmm. to like, Good. oh, what if there are aliens on other planets? Like, that would be so crazy and cool. And yeah. in my opinion, you know, watching it now as like an adult, mm-hmm. it thoughtfully and accurately presents two perspectives on how humanity might react to discovering that we're not alone after mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have all the religious implications and then you have like the people who are more like science focused of what it could mean. More analytical. And, yes. Yeah. Um, Which is very much reflects reality. Yeah, definitely. And also I do feel like, I mean, there are, I feel like the film's aged well in terms of, um, like, the special effects. Yeah, definitely. And, the, all, you know, all the CGI and digital effects. I feel like it was probably pretty advanced, what they did at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching it now, there's, like, little snippets, like, where she's in the pod and she's viewing that, like, star being born or something. She's, mm-hmm. like, at the nebula. Mm-hmm. And they kind of superimpose... Jenna Malone's face on hers. Yeah. Like she's feeling like a kid again yes. and having this. The awe and wonder of it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah. That's neat. Scene. But like watching it now on like a high definition TV, it looks a little weird. Oh, does it? Um, okay. Like, I don't know, like her teeth look funny. Okay. But it's not so bad that it like detracts from watching it, you mm-hmm. know? Like mm-hmm. it, I, to me, it still 
feels like it holds up for being, you know, so old. Right. Yeah, as, as I mentioned, just the a core part of film history is like forever ingrained into my mind with the signal itself. Mm-hmm. Just how wild and wacky it is. Right. And yeah, yeah, it creeped me out. It still creeps me yeah. out. <laughs> I mean, maybe, has it been a while since you've watched it? Um, I, pr- I would probably see it maybe like once a year. I yeah. happen to come across it. Like, what is it streaming on right now? Is it on anything? I don't think it's on. I looked for it. Okay. I actually had bought it like forever ago. Oh, okay. And it was on my like Amazon Prime library. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I can always watch it whenever. But yeah. So some of the like things that I love about it, um, the first being that the main character is a woman and, yes. you know, they're representing, you know, women in science. Mm-hmm. And that even though this movie is almost, it's like 25 years old, right? 26? Oh, yeah, right, because it's yeah. a year after you were born. Yeah. 26, 27 years old. I feel that we've come a long way, but I'm sure there are still a lot of things that, you know, women have to overcome oh, yeah. in terms of getting people to take them seriously. Yes. And they show that in that movie too, where she's often overshadowed by a yes. male scientist. Um, for yeah. example, that scene where they won't, she thinks she's going to be speaking in the white house yes. and yes. sharing information. Yeah. But instead she's like, pushed aside and they have um uh, drumlin yeah drumlin go up yeah and they know. and they introduce him as the head of the science team that made the discovery right which really it was her right exactly it was not drumlin and he yeah. was he so totally believed that their work was bogus mm-hmm. and he it, made he made fun of her he bullied yeah, her he, and, he yeah. essentially tried to like end her career yes. over it he didn't take her what her work seriously no, at all but then she is proved right yeah you know, it just happens to be, and, you know, her work is, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, like, not substantiated, but, um... Validated? Yeah, her yeah. work is validated. Yeah. And then he, you know, of course, his Takes thought credit is to, for it. Yeah, like, yeah. how can I spin this to be like, oh, well, I was in support of it all along. Mm-hmm. And, right. And, you know, of course we made this discovery. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, Definitely. So I, I do like that they show that aspect of it that, you know, women still, in a lot of ways, still have to prove themselves, unfortunately. Yes. But that was really cool that they had the main character be um, a woman in yeah. science. I really like that. Yeah. I also loved the relationship between um, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, their yeah. characters, because they represent... Total opposites yes. in terms of their ideology and their worldview. Mm-hmm. He is very much comes from a spiritual side of things. You know, he believes in God, and he they call him Father Joss, or you know, he's got yeah, that nickname. Yeah, he was like a. I think they briefly mentioned that he was once in seminary, but then he yeah. left it to pursue other stuff. Yeah, and he becomes like the spiritual advisor to the president. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they're completely opposite. She's analytical. She, you know, admits that she's an atheist and all of her decisions are based on, you know, factual evidence. Mm-hmm. And, but they have this connection 
And the fact that they respect each other so much and they respect each other's opinions and viewpoints so much that they find a way to, you know, come together and care about each other. Yeah. Which I think is so important because even more so now how divided our country is in terms of ideology and our values and they're showing in this movie that if you, you know take time to get to know the other person mm-hmm. and, it, you know, respect their viewpoint, even though it may not be something that you agree with or it's not your own viewpoint. Right, right. They show that these two characters are able to work together and care and they care about each other. Yeah. And he says something that I love um, in the end when they're asking him, like, what he believes. Does yeah. he believe that it happened? And he said, um, even though they have... Essentially, he says, even though they have different viewpoints, that they have something in common, which is the search for truth. Yes. No matter what, you know, viewpoint you're coming from, they both have the same goal. Yeah, yeah, Which is yeah. the search for truth. Yeah. And that's so sad that in reality that so many people can't, yeah. you know, come together that way. And yeah. So, but I, that's what I loved about that movie, too, is their relationship. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. I, I like how... You know, they're just two characters, but they use them and their relationship to portray, you know, two sides of the argument. Yeah. And overall and how, you know, it's, it applies to them, but then it can all, it also applies to the world as a whole. Exactly. How, you know, we saw in the film with the the signal and the discovery, you know, Rob Lowe's character, he's in it very briefly and he plays, um conservative right he's like a right. yeah he's like some type of not i don't want to say lobbyist but he has some type of um he's part of the christian coalition yes yeah yes that's right and uh he's there at a meeting with uh, ellie and, and then palmer shows up and then eventually the president shows up and what, what does he say they're arguing about can we trust the information that these superior beings are sending. And he's like, well, we don't even know if they believe in God. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, of course he's going to be like, well, you know, (laughs) these far technologically advanced and superior beings that live light years away from us, that have had millions of years to evolve ahead of us. And his first thought is, why are they Christians? You know, like... I can see that. Yeah. (laughs) And the part where she loses out on the seat initially, because when they ask her on the panel, if she believes in God. Well, it's Palmer who brings up that question. Yes, he throws her under the bus. She's about to finish her, like, final interview with the consortium as they're going through their candidate selection. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to move on to your final statement. And then he cuts in and he's like oh I have another question and you can kind of see like Ellie is just kind of like oh great you know what's mm-hmm. he gonna say and he asks her like do you consider yourself a spiritual person and she was like well I consider myself a moral person and she's like I don't understand the relevance of the question and he goes on to be like do you believe in God and then you know of course other people who are on the panel start bringing up the fact that majority of the world does believe in some higher power of some sort mm-hmm. And, uh, they think therefore the question's relevant. Yes. Yeah. And, um, she tries to, you know, to make the argument that 
uh, being a scientist, she needs yeah more data. Yeah, yeah. and that um, simply because she doesn't have that specific belief mm-hmm. that she should still be taken seriously as a candidate to represent humanity. Yeah. But he asked it knowing that she would lose her chance. Yes. Yeah. Which they kind of, when she eventually is chosen to go on the second machine, you know, they kind of reconcile and he mm-hmm. admits that he it was, was selfish. He, yeah, and yeah. he was afraid of losing her. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he essentially robs her of that chance at first, yeah, which, he did. you know, kind of was a blessing in disguise because mm-hmm. had she been there at the test, right, she would have died. It would have been her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when this film was released, it actually garnered overall positive reviews. It earned a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I was kind of surprised about. That's kind of low. Yeah, it's kind of like a lukewarm... Mm-hmm. It's like, like a, a soft tomato. It's like a tomato that's <laughs> yeah. on its way out. Yeah. <laughs> this tomato's got one, two days tops yeah. left, and then it's <laughs> toss-worthy. Ew. I don't like tomatoes. No. They're already soggy, and then you have a near rotten tomato that's even soggier. But the site CinemaScore gave it a rating of A minus. Okay, I can concur. Um, I concur. <laughs> Why didn't I concur? What? What movie is that from, Dina? I don't know. <laughs> Why didn't I concur? What? <laughs> hey, if anybody knows what quote, what movie <laughs> that quote is from. You have to email us and let us know. Why didn't I concur? Yes. Huh. Okay. Hilarious. Pulled that out of the far corners of your brain. I do that. <laughs> I will often I will often associate actual moments in life to scenes from a movie. Me too. And I think I probably annoy people so much. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's like that movie. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so silly. You're such a dork. Yeah. I can relate every moment in life yeah. to this, a scene from a movie. Or like, um, like, you know, you just memorize over the years so many like scenes and quotes and stuff. Well, I'll be like having a real conversation with someone. Yeah. And then I'll think of a quote that applies and, like, that will be my reply to someone. But I'll, like, say it, like, an impression of the character that I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll be like, huh, what? What, what are you talking you? about? I'm like, I'm thinking of a movie, you know? <laughs> you are so my daughter. <laughs> Why does my brain do that? Oh, uh, yeah. Because we love movies. They I mean know. a lot to us. Yeah, they do. <laughs> when, I, when someone says they haven't been to the movie in, like, two years, I'm like, who are you? Yeah, I go like once, twice a month sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. I, I went to a movie three times in a week recently. What you Three see? different movies. Oh. I'd have to really, you know, think you about what yeah, I saw because I can't remember. remember. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Dang. I remember. I was on that third bag of popcorn in a week and I'm like, I don't know how my digestive system is surviving <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't a good idea. Aw. Oh, but I love doing that. Me too. I love doing a double feature yes. at the movies back Me to back. Too. Oh, so fun. Except like so many movies now are like two plus hours long. Yeah. Where, you know, like before most movies like an hour and a half thereabouts, you know, you could do a double feature in, you know, three hours or so. Yeah. Which isn't so bad when you right. think about it. But then now with all the commercials, all the ads before the commercials mm-hmm. and then 
I forget what I saw in theaters last, but we got through like most of the previews and then they threw in another commercial. Oh. And then another preview what? and then the movie started. I'm like, no. Oh, no. That's like a half hour on top of the already long time that you're going to be there. It's yeah, terrible. It is. We're it's paying so a lot to go to movies and yeah. they're throwing all those ads. Yeah. yeah. Boom. So it makes it really hard to do a double feature because you got to time it just right. Yeah. Now you're spending like maybe five or six hours. <laughs> like you <laughs> need a whole day. When we Just were kids, we were super good at paying for one movie but seeing two. Yeah. Because you could do that. You could movie you could hop. Like, oh. We did that a lot. <laughs> nice. Oh, man, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Mom and Dad. <laughs> Freaking law. It's one of those, I consider that one of those gray laws. One of those gray areas yeah. when I was a like, kid. Like, <laughs> you're not really going to get punished yeah. for it even though technically you know it's yeah. illegal you're not paying for the right. movie that you're yeah. seeing but that was one of our favorite things yeah um <laughs> yeah <laughs> ironically uh, contact was released just one week after the first men in black film ah. kind of interesting uh polar opposites mm-hmm. there silly unserious alien movie and then a very serious yeah very not silly alien movie it actually climbed to second place behind Men in Black when it was released. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it did pretty good. It's opening weekend. And speaking of all things alien, we are going to have an episode coming up where we're going to be talking about the current state of affairs with extraterrestrials yes. and UAPs. And all the sightings and all sightings the, the talk. And government stuff yeah. and really good podcasts that came out. Um, yes. And we'll talk about all that soon. Yeah, really into the alien stuff lately. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Ebert gave the film great praise, scoring it a three and a half out of four stars. In his review, he wrote, Sagan's novel Contact provides inspiration for Robert Zemeckis' new film, which tells the smartest and most absorbing story about extraterrestrial intelligence since Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Movies like Contact help explain why movies like Independence Day leave me feeling empty and unsatisfied. In 2011, Ebert even added contact to his great movies collection. Aww. Yeah. I love it. I miss him. Isn't that cool? I miss him. Yeah. Mike LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle stated in his review that while he enjoyed the first 90 minutes of the film, he felt that there was too much emphasis on the visual effects and less on meaningful storytelling, making for a less impactful climax. Hmm. Which I can, I mean, I can kind of agree with. Mm Mm-hmm. I do feel like there's all this buildup to where she finally goes. Yeah. And then it's, they kind of finish the film pretty quickly after that. Like I, me personally, just cause I'm like, you know, a nerd and I want to see the aliens. Yeah. That pissed me off so much. She's like, yep, you get to come and stay for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. But now you got to go back. And she's like, wait, but I have so many questions. I know. And then we don't actually get to see what the aliens look like. Uh Uh, yeah, I wasn't like sure how bothered, I felt that about... That bothered me as a yeah, kid. <laughs> I wasn't sure how I felt about them portraying themselves as her father. And they are like, yeah. you thought it would be easier for you. You thought it would be easier for her to see her dead dad walking down a beach towards <laughs> yeah, her? Yeah, that's true. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, she's probably like, well, did I die? And right. Yeah. 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 I wasn't sure how I felt about that part. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of agree now that you mm. mention it. Um, and then on the flip side... Rita Kempley of the Washington Post did not like the film and described the premise as a preachy debate between sanctity and science. So we know what side of the coin she falls on. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
so there were, despite general praise for the film, there were quite a bit of controversies that followed. Oh, what um, I hear. Specifically with the use of President Clinton's image in speeches. Ah, uh, yes. That they kind of chopped up and threw into the film to make it make sense for the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, after the film's release, Warner Bros. received a letter from the White House stating that the use of the president's image was inappropriate. Though Warner Bros. claimed that the production crew was upfront and communi- communicative to the White House about the film, although they never received formal clearance to use bits and pieces of the president's speeches taken out of context. Mm. And interestingly enough, uh, the scene where you know Drumlin steals Ellie's spotlight at the White House mm-hmm. and they're announcing the discovery, and then the president comes in, and they took parts of a speech that he made in regards to something that was found on Mars that initially they thought maybe it was signs of some type of like bioactivity. Oh. Um, and it was like just general enough that it kind of made sense for the this movie? point in the film. Okay. And then... They took, like, clips of him. Well, I noticed that, I think, to make it look better visually, Mm -hmm. every time the president was on camera, they made it seem like you were looking at a news report. So you would see Ellie and all the other characters sitting with him, but they had taken previous footage. Oh, yeah. So it looks dated, like it's on an old TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, That they had (laughs) edited in digitally. It's almost like pre-deep fakes. Yeah, kinda. Mm-hmm. Kinda. It reminds me, like, in terms of quality, you know, just before uh, they got really good with, like, de aging mm-hmm. technology mm-hmm. to make actors look younger. The, like, the first big example of that was Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy. Mm-hmm. You remember they yeah. made him look like his younger self from the first film? Right. You watch that now and you're like, ugh. Yeah. That is so, <laughs> yeah. so you know, unnatural. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's very noticeable. And that's, to me, that kind of feels like how the president looked in mm-hmm. contact. He he still seemed kind of out of place. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, I guess they were kind of upset about that. Mm. Um, CNN also had complaints over the appearance of Larry King, John Holloman, and Bernard Shaw in the film. Though they were all employed under time, under the Time Warner Company. Because oh, who the, made the movie? Yeah, yeah. Because of this film, all representatives must now get prior approval through Warner Brothers to make any film appearance. Oh, yeah. And then another big one was the NASA suicide pill. Oh. Uh, before her journey, Ellie is given a cyanide pill by a NASA scientist who states that they'd been giving them out to all the astronauts in the event that they were unable to return and wished to commit suicide. Gerald Griffin, who worked as a consultant on the film and even made an appearance on screen, was persistent in his denial that such a thing had ever happened at NASA. But it was Carl Sagan who insisted that it was indeed true. Zemeckis ultimately left the scene in the film to give more feeling of suspense and danger. And Griffin was a director, I think, for the Johnson Space Center? Okay. At one point, um, he was a bigwig at NASA... And, so uh, NASA, of course, is going to deny it. But what true. probably what, what probably happened was 
an actual astronaut who probably said was something. throwing back some beers one day with Carl <laughs> yeah. Sagan, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. was like, "Oh, you want to know something? Yeah, they give us these blah blah blah." That's probably yeah. what happened. True. Yeah, something you know. Uh, he was like letting the cat out of the bag when, yeah. of course, NASA is going to deny it. Yeah, left that's, and right. that's true. Yeah, yeah. And then um, this isn't so much a controversy, but more like a continuity error. Um, SETI actually published a review of the film in 2011, stating that the VLA is actually much less sensitive than the Arecibo, Arecibo Observatory, which would have made the VLA less suitable for such work in the program. Uh-huh. But the overall film was arguably the most accurate portrayal of what SETI does. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes. Is that still a thing? I believe so. Oh, that's cool. On to um, some major changes that the film made from the book. Okay. Uh, So originally it was five international representatives that are chosen to go to Vega, not just Ellie, which I'm assuming they just did for like time's sake. They probably Mm -hmm. couldn't fit all those other characters and their backstories in and make it, you know, meaningful still. Yeah. I think it has more of an impact that it's just this one woman. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I kind of like the idea of you have all these people from all walks of life from mm-hmm. around the world to represent humanity. It's mm-hmm. not just this one white lady, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also the character of Palmer Joss was modified for the film, giving him a, more of a romantic link to Ellie rather than just being a, like, religious opponent. Uh, not He wasn't so much an opponent. They actually kind of had a friendship mm-hmm. in the book. Like, you know, we talked about, like, their respect for each other. Yeah. And she enjoyed speaking with him about, mm-hmm. like, religious matters. But she only met him, like, briefly. Like, uh, maybe once or twice. Okay. But then they took his character and made him, gave him more of a larger role for the film. Ellie's mother is stated to have passed away during childbirth in the film, but she is actually alive and eventually remarries after the death of her father in the book. Oh. But that's kind of, it was more of a, like a underlying plot point where she had like a tense relationship with her mom. Okay. And then like eventually her mom passes away or something. I don't know. It was like a whole other like sub story within the book, but they just left that out in the film. Also, uh, it was a major, to me, it seemed like a major plot change. Uh, in the novel, the U.S. and the Soviets enter into kind of another, like, space race. Mm-hmm. And they both uh, race against each other to build the first, like, working machine. Okay. Um, but then, eventually, uh, it's the U.S.'s that becomes the only viable one. Okay. And then... There is the other one in Japan that's like the third machine that Haddon had made. Another change was that Drumlin was killed during a tour of a factory that was working on the machine and he wasn't at the site during the, the test in the film as that went down. Oh, okay. But still pretty much the same. Yeah. Like It was like a group of religious fanatics that bombed it. It wasn't just that one guy. But yeah. But for the most part... Most of the characters, kind of how the story goes um, in order, was pretty faithful to the book. Okay. You know, initially I thought that there could have been an argument made that Palmer's character was kind of unnecessary for the film. Like, to me at least, I felt like the story would have been just as impactful 
without the whole love interest yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after hearing your perspective about, you know, they were, you know, two opposite worldviews, but they still respected each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can agree that I think it was important to show that in mm-hmm. the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially at the end. Definitely. Yeah. 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 He says, I for one believer. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And it's like, because, you know, up until this point in her life, she's so analytical. She needs, you know, hard facts and evidence to make a conclusion about things. And then she has this really, like, I would describe it as a spiritual experience going through the universe. And, and then she trying, comes back yeah. and she's like changed and. And uh, she can't prove it. Yes. And then, but then earlier in the film, she makes a point of saying how, you know, well, you know, two things could be true. One, there's an all-powerful being, but he left no proof of his existence. Or two, we just made him up. Yeah. And then now she has to kind of be on the other end of that. Yes. It's, it's so ironic. Yes. And there's that point where, like, what we're just supposed to believe you on faith. Yeah. And, oh, that's such a good twist. Yes. Because now she's she's kind of seeing what that is like for other people. Yeah. Where she's trying to convince them she has no proof. Oh, that's such a good twist in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Oh, I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of, I just watched it, but now I want to watch it again. I know, I do too. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that is our look at Contact. Arguably, I would say, one of the better films. Sci-fi, at least. I agree. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. Leonardo DiCaprio is in this movie. Think about it, and then next time we... We talk, we record, see if you can come up with it. Why didn't I concur? (laughs) It's probably one of his that I haven't seen. Oh, okay. Unless, would I? It's It's not Titanic, is it? No, no, no. no. It's more of a lighthearted film. Hmm. Okay. Based on actual events. Oh. Mm -hmm. Wait, is it about the guy who tries to get out of being in the war? I don't know. I don't know. But it's based on a real person. Oh. Wait. Are you talking about the aviator? No. Oh. Darn it. That was like the (laughs) only only (laughs) movie I know. Yeah. Yeah, no. (laughs) Well, that one's going to bug me. I know. You're going to have to figure it out. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye.